Judges chapter 12, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves picking things up in Judges chapter 12 this evening. We're kind of coming to the end of a man by the name of Jephthah, as we looked at last week, and he was the eighth judge to be listed here in the book of Judges. And we read about his deliverance of the children of Israel from uh, the oppression of the Ammonites and ancient people in the Middle East, and, and then also of his tragic vow that he made, really a needless vow that he made that uh, pre- created some complications for himself and for his daughter that just didn't need to happen. And so, but we were kind of forced time-wise to stop, and so we'll continue here in, in chapter 12 with uh, the rest of his kind of judgeship in the history of the children uh, of Israel. Then the men of Ephraim, following this great victory over the Ammonites, the men of Ephraim were one of the tribes of Israel, and they gathered together, and they crossed over towards Zaphon, and they confronted Jephthah. They said to him, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go down with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Now, this is, uh, there's not a lot of uh, bridge building that's happening right here. You still get into people's face like this. And you don't do it to a guy by the name of Jephthah. And you don't do it when you have the history that the people of Ephraim had. They're just troublemakers. And sometimes they're troublemakers in life. And sometimes there's professional troublemakers even among God's people. That was these people. They had kind of a nasty habit of waiting until the battle was over, the victory was won, everything was well at hand. We see the same history with Gideon when, when he was judging Israel. And they show up after all the heavy lifting's been done, and then they want to accuse the judge of failing to call on them to become a part of the battle and thus robbing them of the glory and everything that they felt that they would have received if they had engaged in, in the battle. And so this is uh, what they're accusing him of. And more than accusing him, they're threatening to kill him and, uh, by burning his house down on top of him. The accusation that they make against uh, Jephthah here of the fact that he had failed to call them, Jephthah's going to, you know, he's, he seems to be called to fixing revised history as a part of his ministry. But the Ammonites had dominated the children of Israel for 18 years in that part of the earth. These guys had 18 years to put up or to shut up, just to come out that you're, if you're as brave as you are and, and this is what you are, not to us, not to the rest of the children of God. You want to get out in the thick of things, want to get out in the battle. You had 18 years to take on the Ammonites, and you never did it. And there's a reason that you didn't do it. So it's a crazy accusation that's brought against, uh, against Jephthah, and, but, uh, I mean brought against uh, yeah, Jephthah, and again, it's the same accusation that they brought to Gideon earlier in Israel's history. But the difference is, 
when they came to Gideon earlier and they said, hey, how come you didn't invite us to get into the battle? And they wanted to create a confrontation with Gideon. The problem is, is that Gideon was still in the middle of the battle. He still, had, he still hadn't mopped things up yet. So rather than get in a fight with another section of the body of Christ or another section of, of God's people, he gave them a soft answer, it turned away their wrath, and he got on with what God had called him them to do. But they didn't learn from that soft answer, and uh, so they're going to repeat this now, but they're going to find out that not all leaders among God's people are the same personality or, or deal with things in the same way. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. We put our lives on the line in that battle. And when I called you, they said they'd never been called. He said, You know I called you. You did not deliver me out of their hands. I called on you to come in and help us in the middle of this battle when our lives were in danger, when the battle hung in the balance, and you folks refused to come in and help. If my life had depended on you, I'd be dead right now. And so when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands, crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. No help to you. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? The claim is completely baseless. It's insane. And he confronts them with it. This is great. This is wonderful clarity in a conversation. It needs to happen this way when somebody's that detached from reality. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead, and he fought against Ephraim. So a war breaks out, a civil war here, and here's the issue. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because the men of Ephraim said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So what we're talking about, the area of Gilead, is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's not actually in the land of, of Israel as we know it today. It's in what is modern-day Jordan. So these Ephraim, uh, the, uh, um, the men of Gilead, they had settled in that particular region, and the men of Ephraim were coming and telling them that they were lesser people as a result of the fact that they did not actually live in the land of Israel. So this is a, an insult that they're leveling against them. I mean, they're just trying to provoke something every way that they, uh, they want to provoke a fight. And so they, they insult uh, the, men of, uh, the men of Gilead. The men of Gilead recognize that it was an insult on their manhood and, and on who they were. And so this war broke out between them and the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped the battle and then tried to cross over the Jordan River back to their land, uh, they said, and they, cried, they would cry out to those, the men of Gilead who had control now of the Jordan crossing points, they'd say, let me cross over. And the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And since, you know, they'd been defeated pretty effectively here they would say no and then they would be put to the shibboleth test then the men of the, of the gileadites they would say to that man who denied being an ephraimite they would then say all right say this shibboleth and if the man came from the tribe of ephraim he would say sibboleth he couldn't say the sh sound 
because of his dialect, where he came from in Israel. So it exposed him for being a man of, of Ephraim. So they try as hard as they could. Shibboleth, Sibboleth, ooh, rats, you know, I mean, this is not going to go very good. So, so they, they, but they just couldn't say it because they couldn't pronounce it right. They were then exposed as an Ephraimite. They would take him, kill him at the fords of the Jordan, and there fell at that time 42,000 uh, Ephraimites. And so this was a simple test that uh, people were put to to discover whether they were an innocent traveler at that time trying to cross uh, the Jordan River or whether they were one of these men of Ephraim that was, uh, you know, putting the nation in danger and threatening everybody's life because things didn't go their way. Not all leaders in the body of Christ are among God's people are the same. We certainly can't say, I'm a Jephthah. Call me Pastor Jephthah. And if you don't like what I do, you know, I'll pull out my shibboleth test and run you off if you don't doesn't operate that way but there are different personalities among leaders in the body of Christ and it's important if everyone was a Gideon and there needs to be Gideons where a soft answer does turn away wrath but I respect the Jephthahs too that set people in their place and God uses them all and we need them all and leaders have different personalities and churches take on different personalities oftentimes based upon the leader Gideon didn't want to get in the mix with these guys. And the Bible, one of the Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Let him go on his way. Somebody comes, wants to pick a fight with you. They're just an obvious troublemaker in your apartment complex, in your neighborhood, on the highways, wherever it might happen, at work or at school, and they want to pick a fight with you. And you can just look at them. They're a troublemaker. It don't, you don't take it personally. They're... They're fighters. They're going to fight somebody. That's, that's what they want to do. They're, if they're going to pick a fight with Jephthah, they're going to pick a fight with the men of Gilead. They're just going to pick a fight with someone until someone whoops them and puts them in their place. There's nothing wrong with just looking at something and say, that's a guy that's looking for a fight. And backing away and say, listen, I'm not the guy to fight you. But when you meet Jephthah, would you say hi to him for me? Because it's coming your way. And there have been times where people have gotten in my face one way or another and all, and I mean, I can flash as bad as anybody in the flesh. and say, Lord, help me on this. And I have to remember, listen, I'm not the person to get in that fight. Somebody else will set them in place, hopefully in place. Hopefully they're in a blue or black uniform. And the time comes. I won't have to be a private citizen. And so... Jephthah comes in and, and dings them, and the tribe of Ephraim would never really recover or become the same uh, as a result of this. And Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the cities of Gilead, uh, buried among the cities of Gilead. And after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel, so judge number nine. He had thirty sons. And he gave away 30 daughters in marriage, and he brought in uh, 30 daughters from elsewhere for his son. So he's got at least six, he's got 60 kids. 
He's got to find, gave away 30 daughters to other people to marry into other clans within Israel and families and then brought in their daughters. And so this guy, this guy understands being connected. A lot of times you would arrange those marriages in order to really be connected. But this guy's righteous in this way. He's even using what he has. What he has, the, the greatest asset or, resource, asset or resource that he has in life is this family. And so he uses it to interconnect with the rest of, of the children of Israel to expand his influence for good and for God at that time. And, when, and, and he judged Israel for seven years and then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. So another example of a man, never fought a war, uh, never did some of these big things that the other judges did. But again, it's, it's a testimony to the power and the necessity of the quiet leader too. You don't have to wipe out uh, uh, 42,000 of the tribe of Ephraim. You don't have to fight a war against the Ammonites or any of these other kind of things to be great in God's eyes. Just do what God has called you to do in the season that he's called us to do that and then he'll acknowledge it and he rewards it. So just quiet leadership that is a great influence for the Lord and for good in, in the world around them, the period of history that, that he was in. There was no war to fight. And after him, Elon the Zebulonite, he judged Israel. He judged Israel for ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the valley, in the country rather, of Zebulon. So another quiet leader. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the uh, Pirath Onite, uh, he judged Israel. He had 40 sons. There you go. Top that. He had 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. Again, they all had an escalade. Just kidding. I don't know what that. But this was, you had a donkey, you had something in those days. Like an IROC Camaro. <laughs> so he blessed, he blessed them in, in this way. And he judged Israel for eight years. And then Abdon, the son of Hillel, this, uh, uh, the uh, Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So another quiet judge. Then we break from quietness into a great storm as we begin now in chapter 13 to learn about probably the most famous of all of the judges, a judge by the name of Samson. And uh, one of the reasons that Samson is the most famous, of course, is because of the supernatural strength that God gave to him and the, uh, the great kind of miraculous demonstrations of strength that that uh, he did, and so it makes for very, very interesting reading. But beyond uh, all of that and, and the tremendous things that he did, the strength that he had, he really is a lesson basically in what not to do with God's anointing and with his calling. And it's a very, very valuable lessons that are bound up in Samson. We won't finish all about him tonight, and uh, next time we're together on this, we'll put, put all of it together, but we'll, we'll dive into it uh, tonight. Again... The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So they, they enjoy this period of time where they're walking with God, they're obeying God, God is blessing them, and prosperity is one of the hardest things for God's people to handle in a holy way, in a righteous way. 
Because it opens up temptation sometimes for sin and idolatry that aren't otherwise there. And so, again, in the blessings of the Lord, they then got fat and sassy spiritually. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, turned to idolatry and, and rebellion against Him. And as a result, the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That is the longest single period in which the children of Israel go into bondage to a foreign people, uh, recorded in the book of Judges. Forty years they went into bondage to uh, uh, the Philistines. And so this whole cycle, this is the seventh time the cycle is recorded in the book of Judges. Now, the Philistines are an interesting group of people, and I think it's worth spending a couple of minutes talking about uh, them, because we're going to be reading about a lot about them uh, from this point on in the Old Testament right on through to David's time. It won't be until David's time that the Philistines are ultimately and kind of finally put in subjection and uh, you know, reduced in a way that they weren't a continual threat to, to the children of, uh, of Israel. So we're going to be reading a lot about them and so uh, good to know a bit about them. The presence of the Philistines uh, in the land went back as far in time as the time of Abraham. They're mentioned all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 21. They arrived in very large numbers uh, into the area of Israel at about 1200 B.C. after they were forced out of their original homeland, which was in the area of Greece. Forced out of their original homeland, they attempted an invasion of Egypt, uh, which they were defeated in their uh, that invasion attempt and so what they did is they simply moved away from their attack on Egypt and settled into an area of land that uh, lay between Egypt and Israel a section of Israel that is known today as Gaza or as the Gaza Strip the Philistines possessed an area of Gaza that is a little bit uh, larger, probably twice as large of an area, uh, moving up further into the north. Uh, uh, if you were to look at the Gaza Strip on a map today, you could d basically double that up into the north along the coast, and that would be what the Philistines possessed in, in the land uh, of, of Israel. Their name means invader, and today the Philistines are extinct. There are a few references to the Philistines, uh, in history, uh, but very few following Nebuchadnezzar II's defeat of uh, the Syrians, uh, Judah, the Philistines in the Middle East and his kind of conquest of, of the land there. Basically, after a very short period of time uh, after that, they ceased to be mentioned as a people, and today they are completely extinct. You cannot find a Philistine. There are no reunions uh, for them. You can't go to like to the 2,000-year uh, reunion of the Philistine. Nobody knows that they're a Philistine, where the blood came from. And so, as a group of people, they vanished in terms of, of, of human history. It's important to realize that the ancient Philistines and the modern-day Palestinians have zero connection at all. And sometimes people get confused on this. When they read about the Philistines in the Bible, they think it's a reference to the Palestinians, the modern Palestinians 
in, in Israel today. But there's no connection between the two. The Philistines were a non-Semitic people. They were not descendants of Abraham. And, as I said, they're extinct. The Arabs today who identify themselves as Palestinians are a Semitic people. They are descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. And so the Philistines, so there's no connection between the two. One is gone, one exists today. We're not talking about a current situation that is uh, 3,200 years old when we read about the Philistines in the Bible. The Philistines were very advanced technologically at this point in time, way beyond the Jews. They had the, they had the skill and the ability to smelt uh, iron, and uh, so long before Israel did so, they were able to develop weapons and tools that Israel would be many generations away from being able to do themselves. So it gave them a very distinct advantage in battle to have weapons that were made of iron and facing someone who was you know still making them out of inferior materials and so this kind of helps us to introduce uh, this this group group of folks called the Philistines that we're going to talk about probably for the next two years now there was a certain man from Zora of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah so we're introduced now to, the, to this account related to the uh, birth of this judge by the name of Samson. His father's name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So no children between them to be barren in those days, unable to have a child, was considered a curse uh, of, uh, of God. Not because God said that, that it was, but because that became the religious teaching uh, of the day. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children. So it's like, wow, how does this guy know this? I've never seen him before. We're going to see that this angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus himself. It's a Christophany. It's a theophany. An Old Testament appearance of Jesus before his incarnation and being born into the world. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But that's who he's dealing with, she's dealing with, not just dealing with a regular angel, no matter how magnificent or high-ranking the angel might be. And the angel then goes on to say, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now you think about what that did in her heart when she heard this. She realizes this is no, she's going to talk to her husband about this. This, is, this isn't... Uh, Alex from down the street or Bob who owns the market on the corner or something. She knows this, this is an otherworldly kind of person that, I, that I'm talking to here. So he, he prophesies as a word of knowledge about her current condition and then prophesies that she's going to conceive and bear a son. And he gives uh, her very specific instruction here uh, as a result of... Uh, uh, of this conception, having this son, that the son was to be a Nazarite from the womb. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and do not eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. Not for his whole life was he to have a haircut. Very cool for some people, they like that. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And so this is the message that he delivers uh, to her. You're going to have a son, and 
he is to be a Nazarite from the womb. What a Nazarite was is described in Numbers chapter 6. And there were three kind of prohibitions upon a person that was a Nazarite. The word, uh, the word Nazarite, it means to dedicate. And what a Jewish person would do is if they had a desire in their heart to seek God in an extraordinary way. Everyone was to seek God. If they had a desire in their heart to surrender to God in His will in an extraordinary way, everyone was called to surrender to God. Then they would take a Nazarite vow. Women could do the same thing. We'll stick with men. It keeps it less complicated. But a person could make a Nazarite vow to God and consecrate themselves to God and they're always a Nazarite vow was for a set period of time. I take a Nazarite vow to you, God, for a period of two weeks, for two months, two years. It was a set, a set block of time. And during that time, a, a, Naz, a man who had taken a Nazarite vow was not to eat or drink anything that had to do with the grape. No wine, no grapes, no raisins. He was not to cut his hair during the period of of his vow and he was not to touch a dead body or he would be defiled now Samson is going to break every one of those vows in the course of his ministry and it's tragic it's unnecessary but he does one by one the interesting thing about Samson here is that the angel of the Lord speaks to the wife of Manoah and declares he is going to be a Nazarite not for a certain block of time. He is to be a Nazarite from the moment of his conception while he is in the womb all the way till the day he dies. And because he is separated unto me with a Nazarite vow from the moment of conception in your womb you are not to partake of any product of the vine so that his, his commitment and his Nazarite vow is not affected in, in any way. And so uh, he was not to drink wine, anything from the vine, while she carried Samson in her womb. It's fascinating because I think it's only been in about the last 50 years or so that even in a country as advanced as the United States of America, medically speaking, that we have really, in general, related to the population, begun to take seriously how what a woman does in terms of eating or drinking or smoking or drugs or all these different kind of things, the effect that it has upon the unborn child. And so that gets great attention today when a person gets pregnant to realize, listen, everything you do affects that baby. But that's a fairly recent revelation. And here's the angel of the Lord speaking to the wife of Manoah and revealing that very same thing over 3,000 uh, years ago here on, on things. Well, not quite that long, but uh, somewhere in, in that kind of a block of time. And so these are the restrictions that are to be on her because of the uniqueness of this boy that's going to be born into the world. And notice his, his ministry at the end of verse 5. Uh, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. God was raising him up in order to deliver the children of Israel out of Philistine oppression. I want you to notice 
At least circle it in your mind. You don't have to circle it in your Bible. But notice that word begin. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. I think surely this represents God's foreknowledge concerning Samson. That he was called by God to become a great deliverer of the children of Israel out of the oppression of, of the Philistines, but that he would fail miserably in his calling. It's interesting, isn't it, that God can have absolute foreknowledge about every single one of us, how we will handle his anointing, how we will handle his gifting, how we will handle his calling upon our lives. And even if he knows that we will misuse those things and crash and burn ultimately, it do, he, his, for, his foreknowledge does not keep him from entrusting those things to us and our responsibility to handle them properly. I think perhaps there's also the recognition here, though, that Samson, even at his best, would have only begun to drive out the Philistines, that the completion of that job was going to be reserved ultimately for King David a little bit later in Israel history. And I think it's very, very important for us to realize in our service to the Lord that sometimes the Lord can call us to begin something, but we won't finish it. And he knows that. It won't reach its ultimate conclusion under us, but it will become the greatest thing that is intended to be under someone else. But God has chosen us to begin something. I think every missionary has to understand that. As they go to Mexico, as they go to Ecuador, as they go to Russia, as they go uh, to Uganda, they go to France, wherever it might be. The recognition that God has called me here to do something that I may just be, uh, it may be just my job, my personality, the way that God has anointed me, the way that God has, uh, you know, gifted me in order to, you know, get a beachhead to begin something here. And so often we can look in a kind of a missions ministry and look at it and say, I've been here for 25 years and it looks like peanuts. But we don't realize that that's just the beginning of something. God will maybe call us out of that or we'll go to be with the Lord. He'll follow that up with another person who has a different gifting, a different calling, who will continue and then make it into something that ultimately what it's supposed to be. We have to be willing to have God use us to begin things. I think even in a local church in a ministry, God can put it on someone's heart to begin a ministry and to come to one of the pastors and say, listen, I know you folks like people who begin stuff and finish stuff, but I think it's on my heart to begin this ministry, but I don't think I'm your long-term person here. I think I'm the person that begins this. But it needs to be begun, and then God will bring the finisher up and attach it to the ministry, and they will take it the rest of the way. And there needs to be a willingness of church leadership to accept that God can work that way. And there needs to be an understanding in our hearts that God can work in our lives that way, to begin something that we will then ultimately move from and it will pass on uh, then to, to someone uh, else. 
and, and uh, that, that he'll, again, make it into the great thing or greater thing that he intends to make it into. Very, very important uh, ministry lesson. And so the woman came and she told her husband, the angel of the Lord leaves now and she's got this promise of a child and, and uh, he's going to be a Nazarite. She's got what his ministry is going to be. He's going to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. She has got to be walking on cloud nine, whatever cloud nine is. Okay. Thank you. And so the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. That's all I can say. I can't describe him. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Now apparently, Manoah asked her all the questions that a man would ask. Did you get his name? Did you get a telephone number, an email address? Or, I mean, he get, tells you all of this and you don't get a contact number. For her, all she cared about is, I'm going to have a child. And he's going to be a deliverer among the children of Israel. And the guy here, he wants to know, he wants to get all of the details related to it. And she said, sorry, honey, I didn't get all of the details. I was satisfied with what, with what, he, what he said. And he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the, Lord, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now this really excites Manoah also. So then Manoah prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord my God, please let the man of God whom you sent uh, come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. Here is a father and a mother who is living in some of the worst ungodliness and apostasy in the history of the nation of Israel, and they've got to walk with God. And they've got a prayer life with God. And when he hears that God is going to bless them with a child, he goes straight to prayer to the Lord, and the great question that he wants to ask the Lord of this child is, how do you want this child to be raised. This child is yours. You have a plan for this child. We want to know what that plan is so we can prepare them for your call upon their life. We know they're going to be a deliverer of Israel from the Philistines, but we'd like to know more about that. The Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift that comes from God. And they're given to us in order that we would raise them as God intends them to be raised. And they viewed this coming son as a stewardship that was being entrusted to them. And it's important we view our children that way. My children do not belong, certainly not now, they're adults, but at any time never belong supremely to Karen or myself. They always belonged supremely to the Lord. They had been entrusted to us to be raised in a way that they could then be successful in God's call upon their lives. 
And that's what we endeavored to do, and, and that's what Manoah is trying to do, and I know that's what you're trying to do. Knowing that one of the things that really helped me as a parent is what I see in Manoah here, and that is knowing that as a parent I am a man under authority. God, this is your child. There are plans attached to this child. And I know that I am under your authority to raise this child in the way that you want this child to be raised. And the recognition of that bolsters our courage. Do you realize you need courage to raise children in the United States of America? Does anybody realize that you need courage or did just Karen and I need it? Okay. All the people that don't have teenagers are just sitting there. What are you talking about? My three-year-old's a dream. (laughs) It's coming, baby. (laughs) And it's a transition from childhood to adulthood, and everyone does it better or worse. But when the child and the wickedness of this culture and the accessibility of sin in this culture comes and says, Dad, why can't I have those posters in my, house, in my room? Why can't we have that music in this house? Why can't we watch those movies? Why can't we have those cable channels? And to be able to say as a father to them, you've been given to me as a gift from God. I'm not free to raise you in just any old way that I want to raise you. One day I'm going to stand before God on how I've been faithful to this ministry to raise you and prepare you for His calling upon your life and to deliver you into adult life with the great potential of being successful in that calling and living a life of holiness and godliness. What you do with it once you leave our influence, that's up to you. But that's the responsibility that we have. And to be able to know that in my heart and even at times communicate it to the children We're not like everybody else in the world. I don't view you like everybody else views their children. My responsibilities are greater than other parents because I know the Lord and I love the Lord. And to make that stand and be faithful to the volume of the book that teaches us about how we're to raise our children. These are very, very godly parents in the context of a terrible, terrible wickedness. And what they teach us is it can be done. By the grace of God, it can be done. So he makes this request, this prayer to the uh, Lord, and God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, wasn't with her. Oh, great! Ah, This is again! What's your email address? No. So then the woman ran in haste, told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came up to me the other day has just now appeared to me. And so Manoah, he arose and he followed his wife. And when they came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Then now let your words come to pass. And what will be the boy's rule of life and his work? I want to understand everything about your plan for this boy 
And, and I want to deliver him into your hands to be successful. And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. He basically repeats his instruction. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you. Can you hang around a little bit longer here? And we want to prepare a young goat for you. And so he wanted to kind of make a special meal for this angel of the Lord that he just thinks is a prophet or kind of a great man at this point in time. And so just to honor him for bringing such great news uh, to them, wants to prepare uh, a meal for him. So they headed right down to uh, McDonald's and they got some bo- goat kebabs and uh, brought it back. No, you're going to prepare a young goat. That takes some time. Can you imagine that? Can you stay for dinner? We'll, we'll go ahead and start, on the, start cooking the goat now. <laughs> Can I go to Costco and Lowe's and come back? That's a lot of time. Well, they had a lot of time in those days. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I won't eat your food. You don't need to honor me with a meal. But if you offer a burnt offering, I'll accept it as a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What's your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. He's not given up on this. Now, what's your name and your address? And so when all this happens, I can kind of send you a card and everything to tell you that the prophecy came to pass. So he's, he's wanting to know all of this, this uh, information from him. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And the idea is, my name is uh, incomprehensible. It is full of wonder. It is beyond understanding. Remember when the Jews uh, named their children... Uh, and, and people were named, they were, a name wasn't just a name that they took out of the culture or an uncle or something like that. A name was given to a person in order that it would represent their nature. And so when he says, my name is wonderful, he's basically saying, that's my character. And of course we know in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we'll see in a moment, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Wonderful is one of the names given uh, to him there. So Manoah then took the young goat with the grain offering, offered up on a rock to the Lord, and then the uh, angel of the Lord did a wondrous thing. So his name is Wonderful. He can do wonderful things. He did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened. Here's the whole thing just sitting there as an offering. As it's just sitting there, it happened that a flame went up toward heaven from the altar and the angel of the Lord then ascended in the flame of the altar. That doesn't happen just every day. So, I, I mean, they, look at the reaction of Manoah and his wife. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. The Lord went up, they went down. And, and they are really fearing for their life. And, and so, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Because we have seen God. He recognized this was the Lord. 
that was a part of this. So Manoah is contemplating his death at this moment in, in time. And thankfully, the Lord gives us just the wife we need. And his wife said to him, Ah, if the Lord had desired to kill us, then he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all of these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Listen, if he's going to kill us, then why did he just tell us we're going to have a child and how to raise the child? Good thinking, honey. (laughs) We'll keep this between you and me. (laughs) Then it ends up in the Bible. (laughs) Bestseller of all time. And so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. uh, And the uh, child grew and the Lord blessed him. And so the name Samson means sunny or it means brightness and sunny being S-U-N-N-Y and the naming of this boy Samson was a revelation of the great hope that these parents had for their son that he would be a brightness that he would be like the sun shining in a very very dark time spiritually in, in Israel's history and so here is Samson. He comes from a very, very godly heritage, wonderful godly parents. He is going to fritter away all of it and end up as kind of a lesson on what not to do. But there's grace in, in the whole story too. And it was no fault of theirs. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at uh, Mahane, uh, Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Now, Samson went down to Timnah And he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, Samson, we're going to see, has a great weakness for women. And he has a great weakness for uh, Philistine women. So he sees uh, uh, one of the daughters of the Philistines. He thinks she's a knockout. And so he went up and he told. He didn't ask his father and mother. He told his father and mother saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And so in those days, all of these things were uh, arranged by the parents. And so he said, I want you to go over there, find out who the parents are of, of this woman, and I want you to arrange uh, this marriage. And so this is, this is something that is going to characterize Samson's life. It is lust at first sight here. And this is deliberate disobedience to the Word of God. God had declared that no Jew, certainly no judge, but no Jew was to marry outside of the children of Israel and into these pagan uh, people. And so he deliberately disobey, is, is endeavoring to disobey God's uh, word here and because the lusts of the flesh are more important to him and satisfying that than being obedient to the Lord. For all of Samson's great physical strength, he was actually a very, very weak man. Weak morally, weak in terms of will, weak spiritually, and, uh, um, and it, it'll, it'll be his undoing. And so he tells his father, listen, this is what we want, my mother, I want, uh, his father and his mother, I found the woman and uh, I want you to make the arrangements. And by the way, she's a Philistine. Now when he says, I have found a woman, he certainly did. Because God had no part in it. God didn't bring this woman in, into his, his life. You and I can be sure. 
if we sit here tonight as a Christian, that God will never ever bring a non-Christian into our life for marriage. It's not something that He does. You say, I think the Lord is bringing this woman or this man into my life. He's not if they're not a Christian. You wait till they become a Christian for that to happen, and then watch them for a long time after that. No, I'm a Christian. Bing, 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 bing. People will say a lot of things to get what they're, who they're wanting uh, to marry, so you need to see uh, fruit. So the parents, they protest all of this, and his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? I mean, is there, isn't there one single Jewish, nice Jewish woman that you could be attracted to and marry? Or among all my people that you must go out and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision was a, a mark of, of a covenant with God. So he's saying, you've gone to find a wife among people that don't have a covenant relationship uh, with, with God. You've gone outside the faith. And Samson said to his father, get her for me for she pleases me well. Not only does he have no respect for God's authority in his life, he has no respect for his parents' authority or his parents' wisdom. You've all heard the old joke about, you know, how much smarter our parents get once we reach 25 and 30 and 35 and 40. And it's true. Not always true, but it's generally very, very true. They're smart in a lot of ways. And, and that's why the Bible says that we are to heed our parents, especially when they can back it up with chapter and verse here, but he doesn't want any of it. His flesh wants this, forget about relationships, even as close as his father and his mother, and forget about the Lord, and it's going to end up uh, biting him. But his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord that God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now, his parents didn't realize that the Lord was going to overwhelm this act of disobedience on Samson's part and, and work it together for his purposes. It doesn't mean that breaking the law was desired by God, but that Samson's decision was overruled by God for his purposes and for his glory. God didn't direct Samson to, into disobedience. But at the same time, God doesn't abandon his program for the children of Israel related to the Philistines because of, of Samson's disobedience. The Bible says that God is able to even make the wrath of man to praise him. That's how easily he can overwhelm anything for his, his purposes. And so the Lord was seeking an occasion to judge the Philistines and to break their oppression off of Israel. And the Lord knew that Samson's poor decisions would would lead to that, uh, if nothing else, related to his life. And so Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. They came to the vineyards of Timnah. And so what? And somehow as they're walking to, uh, to Timnah, he breaks off from his parents on the path and he heads out into the vineyard. What in the world is a man who has been called by God to do an extraordinary thing in the history of the world. Who has a Nazarite vow, what is he doing breaking off from his parents and wandering through a vineyard when he's to have no contact with grapes or any product of grapes? Can he see? One of the things about, about Samson is, 
How many of you ever remember a comic book a million years ago? I'm just hoping for one. I know that well, there used to be a comic book called Baby Huey. Okay, good. There are other people who are very well read <laughs> in life. Samson reminds me of Baby Huey. This gigantic duck, but Dumb as a rock in some respects. I don't say intellectually, but certainly spiritually on things. And, and he's just, to me, he's just this man-child. And all these things that God has given to him, God's call on his life, his place in human history, the anointing, he's been given everything he needs to be successful in God's call on his life, and he acts like it's a big game. Walking through vineyards, we're going to see he, he does riddles and he lights foxes' tails on fires. And it's just a big game to him. And he doesn't realize what the stakes are. And he's just playing with God's calling. I hope there's none of us doing that tonight. Got to take seriously God's calling upon our lives. Not put it in needless jeopardy. There is enough temptation that will come our way when we walk the straight and narrow. We don't need to be going out into the vineyards of Timnath and going near the temptation for defilement. Otherwise, we have no hope of standing. So he's just this goofy contradiction. We'll talk about more about that next time. So he goes in there, and to his surprise, a young lion came roaring out of the vineyards against him. It didn't belong there. The Spirit of the Lord, God is gracious, came mightily upon him. He tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. I'd like to see that on YouTube. So you take this baby goat so easy to just kind of dissect and all that stuff. He's just able to rip it in two, though he had nothing in his hand. And he did not tell his father, his mother, what he had done. And then he went down and he talked with the woman. She pleased Samson well, so they get the introduction and all Oh, wow, she's got a personality too. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. He said, I wonder what ever happened to that lion I killed out there. Some period of months had gone by. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were now in the carcass. They had put a nest in the carcass of the lion. And so he took some of it in his hands of the honey, and he went along eating. Touched a dead body. Violation of the Nazarite vow. But when he wants a woman, he gets a woman. Who cares about God's calling or obeying him? When he wants honey, he wants honey. That's what his flesh wants. Who cares about God's calling or God's purpose for his life? He just takes the honey. And here, in doing this, he violates one of the conditions of, of being a Nazarite. So he, he took and, and uh, 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 turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hand, went along eating. And when he came to his father and his mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he didn't tell them what he had, that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion, because they wouldn't have eaten it. They were godly people. You have violated your Nazarite vow to get this honey. So he knows what he's doing. And he's just sneaking around on it. And so the father went down uh, to the woman 
And his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there for the young men used to do that. So now they're going to, he's going to marry this, this Philistine woman. And it happened when they saw him that they brought him 30 companions to be with him. Now this is very unusual. He marries this woman not in Israel, not in the home of his parents. He marries this woman in the land of the Philistines, probably because the parents would not endorse the marriage and, and, and uh, uh, put their, their godliness, their relationship with God, jeopardize that and their witness by having his, their son here uh, before friends and family you know, uh, join together what, what God had said should not happen. Uh, so he goes to the land of the Philistines. He doesn't have a best man. He doesn't have any groomsmen. And so the Philistines supply him with plenty of those, 30 companions, uh, to be with him. And then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. So, and, and this riddle is just what his life is all about. It's just a big game to him. So he said, if you can proper, correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, and in those days when you had a wedding ceremony, it lasts seven days. That's very nice, isn't it? Uh, boss, do we have a, a, a paid a wedding leave uh, program here? Man, you'd look forward to every wedding you got invited to. But they'd last seven days, and there'd be a lot of feasting and a lot of drinking and a lot of eating, and then you would consummate the marriage on on the seventh day. And, and so they got seven days here to kind of kill and he wants to amuse himself with, with a riddle. And so he proposes something to them that I'll give you a riddle to solve and if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. This is really, really beautiful kind of clothing which is spoken about in the original language here. It's not stuff I wear. This is really nice stuff that he's saying. All right, if, if you explain the riddle, then I'll give you the 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. If you cannot explain it to me, then you've got to give me 30 linen garments and, and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, you're on, pose your riddle that we may hear it. And so he said to them, here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. So he's talking about the honey inside of the lion. And, and so he gives them the riddle. If it were me, I'd already be heading to Macy's to buy the garments. I'm not very good at riddles, and I would have never known, and I think he is very, very confident, they will not solve this, this riddle. But they've got other means of solving uh, riddles, as we'll see. So for three days, they could not explain the riddle. And now they're starting to get desperate because this was an expensive proposition for each of them to pay for this kind of, of clothing. And so it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to uh, Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? So they accuse her of collaborating. You got him to come here to give us a riddle that we couldn't solve because you wanted to rip us off on all of this clothing. And these people, as we're going to see, they just don't make threats. They make threats and they keep threats. So to the wife and, and to the family, you either get us the solution to this riddle or you're all dead people. That's the threat that's made. 
So that's a considerable motivation that she is, is under here. And so then Samson's wife wept on him, wept on him, and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've posed the riddle to the sons of my people, but you haven't explained it to me. How can we have an open marriage if you're keeping these secrets like this from me? And he said, look, I haven't explained it even to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? This guy's not ready for marriage. All of us can recognize this man is not ready for marriage. Now, while she had wept on him, the se- uh, now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and she's weeping and crying and begging and pleading. Samson had a weakness for women, and but one of the things that he couldn't stand was nagging, and he couldn't stand crying women. He's going to give up the secret of his strength to Delilah under the same thing. Because she begins to nag him and nag him and nag him and nag him. And finally he gives the secret up. And so he he could face a whole village of Philistines and not even blink. But a nagging and a a crying woman, uh, he was powerless before her. And so it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. I can't take it anymore. And then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. And so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, just before they're about to lose the bet, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, He just called his wife a heifer in public. I'm telling you, this guy is not ready for marriage. There's got to be like a pre- premarital counseling course that covers these kind of things. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer. I don't care what culture you live in, that doesn't translate well. You would not have solved my riddle. Now here's the point he's making. You never plowed with a heifer. You plowed with an ox. So what he's saying to them is, you've done something that, you've done something that is unorthodox. You have done something wrong. You've done something that anyone would look at. If somebody was out plowing with a heifer, people would look and say, that's not right. That's just wrong. Get an ox and plow with an ox. He said, what you've done to me is wrong. Because he recognizes they only solved it because they had, they had gotten the information from his wife. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. He's got to come up with 30 changes of clothing. He went down to Ashkelon, about 23 miles away, so he could do this and nobody would hear back about, about it at the, at the location of the wedding. And he killed 30 of the men of the Philistines. He took their apparel and he gave the changes of the clothing to those who had explained the riddle. And so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house. He is so upset over this riddle issue. He's not upset at disobeying God, disregarding, disrespecting his mom and dad, none of this kind of stuff. But he's really ticked off that they did this and, and they beat him on this riddle. 
And he is so upset about it that he can't enjoy his wedding night and all, so he just uh, returned home fuming with anger, went up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was then given to his companion, his best man among the Philistines who had been his best man. So the father, that was a disgrace. I mean, it's a, it's a disgrace to a bride. Even today, it's a disgrace to the family if a groom doesn't show up at the altar on a wedding day. That's a humiliation for the whole family. That's what he's doing to the family. So in those days, an entire seven-day feast has been invested in the marrying off of this daughter. And so there's going to be a marrying. And so in order to save face for the family, she was then given to the best man, and the marriage occurred. And we'll pick things up and just kind of hold our thought there related to Samson, and we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 15 next time. Let's stand together, and if the worship team would come forward, that would be great.